for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Weekends are better when you spend it with us. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Hello and welcome to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. I'm delighted to have your company today and every day. I'm very, very thrilled to receive your emails and guest suggestions, and I promise I'm working on those to bring you the people that you'd like to hear me interview on the show here on weekends. You'll note that Saturdays are between 1 and 4 p.m. Brisbane time, and Sundays are between 3 and 6 p.m. So the different days means that we can open up the audience globally. What I try to do is bring you guests from the United States, typically early on in the show on the Saturdays, If I can get people staying up late at night, I'll do that as well for you. And then we get the opportunity on the Sunday program to find our European guests so we can go far and wide and bring you the people that you would love to hear from. And you might notice that over the last few weeks that I've been increasing the guests involved with writing books and telling stories and the authors who put, you know, a lifetime worth of work into their efforts and deserve the long form position here at TNT that we can provide extended interviews to understand more and more about what motivates our particular authors to do the work that they do and tell the stories that they can in the detail that our TNT audience really, really loves and appreciates. And today will be no different. In fact, all three guests on today's show have all written books about either their lives or the work that they're doing. Let me tell you what's coming up. I'm going to tell you about my first guest in a moment, but in the second hour, I've got a political scientist and author who's also been involved in the military. His name is Joel Skousen. And one of the things that he has been specially uh, specialising in is preparedness in case of, goodness me, a nuclear attack. We've only learnt today that in Gateway Pundit, they're reporting that, would you believe, NATO has given the all clear for Ukraine to launch attacks into Russia, defying a well, threat from Vladimir Putin to say that there could be some form of escalation. So I think the timing of Joel's interview today could not be more apt. In the third hour of today's show, Father John Flada will join me, and he has uh, dedicated his life to the clergy and the cloth, and he's written not one but two books on life after death. I'll tell you what, getting stuck into the first one was uh, remarkable. It is another one of these profound realisations that you will want to tune in, hear more, And likely, I think at the end of the day, you're going to uh, be looking up different websites and ordering one, if not two, or even three books at least, uh, such as the quality of the writing and the quality of the guests I've got for you today. And I'm delighted to tell you now about my lead guest for today's show. You know him very well. His name is David McBride, Major David McBride. And you all know about the story of David facing sentencing as a whistleblower for, well, he's ended up pleading guilty to uh, three charges and he's waiting uh, the verdict from the court on March the 12th to know his fate. But I'm also going to talk to him today about this incredible book that he has written. Uh, I'm going to show it up on the screen now. It's called The Nature of Honour. We will play uh, a little bit later, some overlay so you can get the details there, but uh, it, it's quite incredible. And I actually, before I introduce David, I want to um, just read off the back cover um, just what is written as his bio. It, it's just quite incredible, really, when you think of it. He asked the question, how far would you go to do your duty and to help others? The son of the Lord of the then infamous obstetrician, Dr. William McBride, who'd alerted the world to the dangers of thalidomide, 
David felt uh, he could be called to be a soldier from when he was a child. He grew up in Sydney, then attended Oxford University. There he studied law and became Oxbridge heavyweight boxing champion. Of course he did. Turning away from the law, David joined the British Army in the prestigious Blues and Royals Regiment, serving in West Germany at the end of the Cold War and in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. He then worked in security, protecting diplomats, journalists and business people across Africa in highly volatile situations in Rwanda and Zaire. Getting tired of the travel and the danger, David got a job at English reality television, as of course you would expect David to do. When you meet David, you realise that there's only one speed, it's full speed ahead. And in the early 2000s, he returned to Australia, dabbled in politics, TV and the law. He then brought his two loves together, soldiering and the law as a legal officer in the Australian Army, serving two tours in 2011 and 2013 on the front line, confirming or denying decisions made by soldiers under international laws until he was finally medically discharged in 2017. It's an incredible story, and we're just getting the beginning of it. David McBride, welcome to Weekends. Uh, thank you very much, Jason. What a great uh, what a great intro. Uh, I think this could be something uh, you could really do every, uh, every week, I hope, book I want to do a few book reviews myself. I've got one, um, but it's great when you when you come across interesting books and you can talk about them, and um, people can uh, either go and buy them or just enjoy the chat. It's a good intellectual uh, exercise, and um, yeah, it's a it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you very much. Uh, David, the, uh, as they like to say on American television, the pleasure is all mine. I mean, uh, I told you the story how we um, I raced out and uh, and got hold of the book because I figured that uh, you've done so much work for everyone else and everyone else's causes. And it was just um, only recently I saw on social media uh, there was a post with your book, uh, that, and I'm not, I can't remember if it was sponsored because I went to take a screenshot, uh, looked away, and, and of course the posts I scrolled and it disappeared. But what I did do was read the comments, and that was the reason why I wanted to take the, the extended screenshot. And all of the people commenting were talking about how much they wanted to read the book, how much they had read the book and loved the book. Uh, and, and they're all pointing to one thing. They kept saying, no, I'm going to go and buy this book from um, one of the department chains. I assume it's because they were discounting, not because it was in the, in the throwout bin. It's just that some of the retailers take that 30% off or whatever they do on paperbacks. And uh, I was one of the people that raced out and, and paid my 24 bucks. And let me tell you, in 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 the short time that I've had to, um, to read through uh, a, a fair chunk of the book already, Already, um, uh, I was um, amazed at just how beautifully written and the storytelling. It, it's just one of these natural gifts that you can add to your repertoire of skills and uh, and abilities, David. It, it's remarkable the story, and I do want to get uh, and talk a lot about that today. You know, that's great, and I'm really pleased to hear that. And I, and I was glad that it was in a supermarket chain. One of my aims with the book was to make it not um, well to make it a relatively easy read. One of the guys, and I can't quite remember his name. I'm telling my kids about it today. Someone Barrett, Roy G. Barrett or something. And Roger he, Barrett. Was, he used to write books about a detective or something. Yes. And um, uh, they were extremely widely read. And, and you, he'd get people like um, in jails, for example, and say, I've never read a book. Um, I'd, you know, I'm not a book, but I read your books. You know, and I used to think you can't get a better accolade than that, than getting someone who's not really a reader, um, who may not be a strong reader, but they read your books and you think that's that's fantastic. That's much better than, um, you know, getting the, the sort of high-end set, but getting uh, people who are not really, wouldn't consider themselves book people, but actually read it. So it makes me so happy if the, if the book's in the supermarkets, yeah. 
Oh, look, it's it, you're exactly right. And um, I was at, I, I struggled reading at school, and mainly I, I could read, but I just couldn't comprehend. I don't know if I, my eyes were moving too fast. And, and and as a young as a young kid, and it was pointed out to me very early, and I think about the age of nine or ten years old, that one of my friends at school was reading a, a book series called Encyclopedia Brown, and it was about a child detective. It's interesting that the mysteries uh, were the ones that got me into it. They were short stories, maybe six or seven pages each, and what it's what got me to love reading because. There was a there was a plot and there was a result and there was always a twist and there was the idea that you could think and it forced you to think about what you'd actually read. I could never guess how Encyclopedia Brown solved the case until I read the solutions, but I loved reading the books and other stories and then the solutions. And it turns out, fast forward some 40 years, and my son, the same age, is reading the books and he says to me, Dad, these are my favorite books too. And I and, and it makes total sense that we are in that. It's good to hear that, is that I was the same. Um, I read uh something called The Three Investigators by Alfred Hitchcock, funnily enough, and it was about childhood kid investigators. And I, I seem to remember something a bit like what you just said where uh, they would explain it as well. There was there was definite clues. I don't know if it was The Three Investigators or other ones, but there would be definite clues that you had to pick up on. And, um, yeah, for the inquiring minds of boys, it was great, and, and it would tell you um, – you know what? If you didn't get it, it'd say, "Oh, it was because the goldfish was swimming the wrong way, or whatever." <laughs> yes, yes, exactly yeah. right. Or, or the shadow was pointing in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. so and so was lying. So that's yeah, not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, and that's the beautiful yeah. thing, isn't it? That uh, it, it it gets you to read, it gets you to participate, but you're doing it on your own terms. It's not like you're competing against anyone. And all yeah. of a sudden, you realise that. I remember for me, the marker was how many pages, of course, that I'd read in a given period of time, and that I could get through them quicker. And that gave me the confidence to want to take on more and more and look more and more. And you go through stages. You have a stage where you might read, you know, as an adult, might read ten books in. in in a given period of time, and then you look back and go, "Goodness me, I haven't read a book in two years. What's up with me?" But uh, it, it sort of goes with with the territory uh, in, in how we uh, explore new stories. And it just so happens in, in in the show now on weekends, I've just been blessed with a number of guests putting together incredible stories. And David, yours is certainly one of those. I'll just keep an eye out on the clock there because we're going to have to take a break in a minute. But I just quickly before we do go to a break, can I ask you how long did it take you from the process of deciding to write the book to getting down and starting it, and then going through the journey and completing it? It took a while and I um, – one of the things I'd like to do if I'm not in prison or whatever is to go around and do lectures about people who want to write books about their own life because I I, I did a fair bit of trial and error and I it's, um, it's a bit like tennis um, or, you know, any kind of sport. Often the professional for whom it comes naturally to is not a very good teacher because they can't understand how – you can't do it like they can. Um, and I uh, I faffed around for for three years. I think I got the advance probably back in 2019 um, and and I started writing immediately but, and some of the things were useful. But the, uh, the actual book was published, I wrote in about six months when they, because when they, it was going to come out after my trial and I couldn't really get that motivated to. I was like, well, well, I have plenty of time to write in jail. Um, and then they said, oh, look, we can put a prequel out before the trial. I got enough, my profile had increased enough, so that was funny. So I started and I just wrote it chronologically. There's a little bit of flashback at the beginning, but I just wrote it. And I also took the attitude, I used to wake up in the morning, I'd have half a cup of coffee, and you start writing 
when you're too tired to lie, that was my sort of uh, catchphrase in the sense you just say what you did and uh, maybe what, you know, what you remember without, because we all try to put context and, oh, only because of this and because of that and um, that I did that and we all try to maybe put a bit of gloss on everything that we do. But but when you, if you strip that away and try to be as honest about your motivations as you can, even though it's a little bit raw, but especially when you're talking about as a kid and what you wanted to be as a kid and whatever, but then it just kind of flowed. And I think the hardest thing is getting your voice right when you, because you, we can all tell our stories for laughs as we do when we're with friends and dinner parties, or we can tell it in, in, in quite tragic terms. Um, but, you know, to get that right voice where it's it's in the middle somewhere, where there's a little bit of humour, there's a little bit of darkness, but it, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's not too much. Well, and, and letting the reader, I guess you've got to have confidence in the reader that the reader can, you don't have to spell everything out, but they can use a little bit of their imagination and throw in a few things where you where you don't really explain fully why you did things and let the reader think about it. Um, but what makes me so happy is when people get that you're not really, because you can never be sure whether the, whether you've made the point properly, but it makes me so happy when people say, oh, I love that, I love that theme, I, I got what you were trying to say in that when you haven't necessarily used too many words, but people pick up on on what you're trying to say. Uh, it's, it's just just fascinating the, the whole process that you can uh, explain it and find that balance and the nuance again uh, in, in the process of being able to tell a story. Like you said, how do you how do you theme it? How do you make it not too sad and too serious? How do you make the reader think about what's going on? And I think that's the art of writing. We're going to talk a lot more about uh, David's book. Uh, we're going to take a break in a moment. But before we do, if you've missed your favourite TNT show or interview, simply listen or watch it when you want, wherever you want. Just visit episodes on the TNT Radio website or rumble.com, bitshoot.com or even brighteon.com. We're also on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Podbean, iHeart and TuneIn. Now, there's no reason to miss out on anything on today's news talk, TNT. TNT's Chris Smith. You know, there's nothing humane in the boat people, people smuggler trade. Nothing Nothing humane about it or compassionate about it at all. This has always been one of the great delusions of the left. And if they didn't learn that lesson from the tragedy of the uh, Rudd and Gillard government, when over a thousand people drowned on, on the oceans to the north of Australia, if they didn't learn that lesson about a thousand people, including women and children drowning, well, they're very slow learners and they're bound to repeat that mistake. But that's because their ideology superseded the practicalities of the issue, right? Yeah, absolutely. Albanese from the left was always ideologically bound, almost fanatical hysterical about saying if you don't believe in taking all the refugees then you're some sort of barbarian a racist a bigot from western sydney chris smith on today's news talk tnt TNTradio.live. Here we come. And we're back. And thank you for tuning in today on Weekends with Jason Obel. My guest this hour is David McBride. David, 
learning about the process of writing the book, as we talked about before the break, then we're going to get into the story itself. And what I find incredible is how the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now, here you are facing um, an unknown on uh, the middle of March, for which all of us who uh, know you, love you, and support you and are in your corner are praying that the judge will see reason and offer a suspended sentence or something in that turn, because what you have done is been able to expose things that should be exposed in the public interest. But of course, the legal system is looking for ways to, to punish you for doing what you needed to do, what anyone in your position would do. But when I say the apple hasn't and fall farther from the tree, your own father, Dr. William McBride, is famous for exposing the birth defect drug thalidomide. That is just an incredible story. It's on its own. It's something that my mother taught me about as a young child. I didn't understand when I saw the birth defects on, on, on people who were walking around. Some were quite young at the time, of course, when I was a kid. And uh, it's something that we've grown up with. We learned that it took the British Parliament 30 years to apologise for thalidomide. How was it growing up in the household with your father in that period of time, uh, obviously pushing up against the system? Was that part of your inspiration to want to do big things in your own life? Yeah, I think it was, even if it's subliminal. Uh, he always had documents, uh, papers all over his study floor. We're both, we're both, we're both congenitally disabled. Uh, untidy people <laughs> and uh that's how we we can't if i put something away in a drawer it's out of it uh, i forgot about it yep. um, and that's why i struggle with computer uh storage systems because once it goes into a computer folder i never know where to find it but um uh so i like to put everything on the floor as he did and um yeah he was obviously always thinking about uh things and an inquiring mind and um uh, but he got, he also got a, got a lot of accolades um, for that. I mean, it, he made the discoveries just before I was born and then um, he started getting credit for it about 10 years later. That's something that uh, you don't, it doesn't really occur to you as, as a young child or as a kid, really, or not till you're a mature adult, you realise I've been fighting this thing for 10 years myself. And um, I think, God, that's a long time. But then dad, dad, dad had 10 years before he, he really got um, a recognition for it. So, um, yeah, you realise, oh, he, he did a little bit. He was quite stoic about it, but um, he uh, he's managed to uh, keep on keeping on. And um, luckily he had some good uh, media support, as I say in my book, if he hadn't had people like John Pilger and... Uh, uh, Philip Knightley, two Australians in the uh, in the, in the UK, and they're very good um, things that have sort of not completely fallen by the wayside, but really good investigative journalist um, teams who uh, took it as a, a, a like detectives took it as a as a, uh, a a work of pride that they would take on very big things, corporations. Um, I don't know if they'd be able to do it now. But they, um, it was, yeah, it was good when you walked around the street. People would shake your, your dad's hand, and and they would, uh, they would be very deferential to you. And but I knew that it came from hard work. He, he didn't come from a, a privileged background, and I was always aware that it was a, it was a sort of gossamer thread. He was a revered person. 
he had helped a lot of people. A lot of people, apart from the thalidomide, you'd meet uh, people in the street, and a lot of them were first-generation Australians um, from Greece and Italy, and um, and they'd say, we would, well, they didn't say too much, but they'd say things like, doctor, uh, you know, the only reason I have a healthy baby boy or girl is because of you, and I'm so grateful. Um, and you could see that gratitude, and he lived for that. He just loved that. And uh, But he was, it, it came from from work and i guess it affected me in the sense that um i'd been i always knew that we were privileged and we were richer than the people next door we were richer than his parents um and my mother's parents and but that that comes with a certain amount of responsibility that you have to also do something good in the world and and in that if you don't especially when you've been born with privilege and you've gone to good schools that you'd feel like a bit of a failure if you don't do something worthwhile worthy um there's no reason why you you know you can't have a little bit of fun along the way but i definitely felt a little bit of a burden on myself um to do something worthwhile uh, on my time in this world and 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 just um uh, living a peaceful life wasn't going to do it um i uh I often used to think that that was the voice of my father in my head. I think it was the, my own voice, <laughs> which took a, often we, we give ourselves a hard time and we think, oh, that's our parents, that's our parents, you know, um, voice. But often it, it's not our parents' voice, it's our own voice, which we uh, we put on, um, we assume it's our parents. And, and, and I was quite similar in that we're quite a hard taskmasters of ourselves. And if we don't do something really good, well, or we're like, come on, you can do better than that. You, you know, you, what you've been put on this earth to do something good. Um, get out of bed, get, get going, um, do something, um, do something which you can be proud of. And so, yeah, I think that um, I, I came to realize, as I say in the book, that we're, my father and I are almost exactly the same person, born you know forty years apart. Um, we. Um, uh, I I I think if he'd been born, but you know, into his family like I was, he would have pretty much lived the same life that I would have lived, as I would have if I'd been born when he was born. And um, we, we we clashed over certain things, but that was just like typical father son stuff. But we were actually have um, uh, the same kind of attitude to a laughable way. I always laugh at the kids because my father was always blaming me every time he he couldn't find something. It was. <laughs> <laughs> it's his belt or his trap. And he'd always like, oh, the boys have stolen my belt or whatever. And of course, it would turn up in his drawer. <laughs> he just had to look. And I'm the same with my kids. I'm like, yes. oh, who's stolen my charger? Someone stole my charger. And I instantly blame them. And and um, uh, it's usually, you know, well, they used to steal my charger. Now they know not to. And I used, it turns up, but at least I can, I, I can laugh and apologize to them. And I realize, as I said, you open your mouth and your father comes out some, the older you get, which is pretty funny.
Oh, that's beautiful. Well, uh, I know that my wife's watching and she'll be laughing right now because I am always losing my glasses and there seems to be a treasure hunt almost on a daily basis where my kids and my wife are tracing my footsteps to find out where these things are. And the hardest thing, of course, is when you're using them as reading glasses. You just can't see, you know, three inches in front of your face without them. And that makes it very, very hard and frustrating. So I certainly feel your pain. David, I wanted to make the reference um, about your father and yourself almost to a fault that uh, the dad was, um, if anything, he was the utmost, um, uh, um, what's the word for it? He, he was the one that stood by the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And I think that even to a fault in that sense, because the work that he did on exposing thalidomide and even uh, later on uh, going through the uh, the hell that he had to go through and being struck off for that period of time must have been hell on earth. But really, it seems like both you and him, all you wanted to do was to protect as many people as possible because dad's work led to the fact that pregnancy, at least here in Australia, means that, um, that women are, are told and instructed to take as little as possible during pregnancy to prevent any possible birth defects. In fact, if anything, you would think that your father was the, the, the litmus test for, for the change in creating many, many, many thousands, if not millions of healthy babies with uh, with, with less and less uh, problems at, at birth. Uh, how, how do you feel about that in terms of, of, of your own uh, situation that you're in now? Would that explain the fact that you just can't tolerate that people would need to suffer and that those that have made mistakes must be held to account? It probably is, and a lot of these things are um, subconscious, subliminal. I mean, th that's right with, with him. He, he was quite old school, was born in 1927, and I don't think – I never noticed, even though he got into medical school and first person in his family ever to go to university and he got a scholarship to medical school, um, I, I never saw that his, his own parents, my grandparents, were particularly – they weren't particularly effusive in their praise of him. So that showed, that's just the kind of way that they were. And he was a bit the same uh, with me. I mean, he always knew I was relatively smart and whatever. And I don't, he never, he, he wasn't sort of touchy feely and you're, you're great. He was, if I, you know, got 90% in an exam, he'd be sort of like, well, you, what, what about the other 10%? He wasn't mean about it, but he, he they had, they had pretty high standards in, in that was all he knew. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, you do pick up on that. And he wasn't um, uh, touchy-feely, but he was a good person and he wanted to, uh, you know, and mum was the same. You know, they would, if they knew uh, someone was doing it tough and, and they, they, they would give them extra money or they would give money to beggars in the street or the homeless people. And 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 they really did walk the walk. Um, and that rubs off on you and you think, and, and in the same way, yes, I, I imagine when he went to medical school, um, he would have grown up um, in the Depression and, and his first hero, I think, was a guy called Howard Florey, the Australian, who uh, was very instrumental in the, in the production of penicillin. Um, which made a huge impact on the world and came out just before the Second World War. God knows what would have happened if we hadn't had that for the Second World War. So um, he made a uh, so dad undoubtedly when he went into got into medical school he did see it as something a bit like um, a holy order, you know. And and the Hippocratic Oath was the, it was the sort of thing that they took seriously. Mm. Um, and it was they weren't there to make money or to get a Mercedes car or or whatever. Like some of these new doctors 
might be. They were they really did take that. And on his bookshelf, for example, um, he always wanted me to read a book and I never read it. The story of Stan Michelle, I think it was Sam Miguel or whatever. And it was about it was a sort of um it was a it was a medical uh, adventure story sort of thing where they got you know, doctors had gone some, to some remote place and set up uh uh, a hospital or something, and it was it, that was the sort of thing that which they thought was you know that was that, that was the greatest story they could ever imagine you know and they um one of their some of their friends from the hospital when they were uh, at Crown Street which he loved um, they uh, a couple um, the Hamlins they they set off to Ethiopia and they set up. Um, uh, they realised a lot of women in Ethiopia were having complications uh, in birth, something called a fistula, where the, the, they would lose control of their bladder after birth. Relatively easy. It still happens here, of course, but it's we fix it here. Um, but in Ethiopia, they didn't have the ability to fix it. So then the women um, would keep soiling themselves and then they'd be ostracised by the tribe and they'd live the rest of their life, you know, as sort of hermits like they were lepers. Anyway, these friends of his went from Sydney to Ethiopia and set up a hospital to fix that, a bit like Fred Hollows or something like that, in, in, um, in a gynecological sense. And, uh, yeah, that was the sort of people that they were. That, that was, that was um, they saw, you know, going, dedicating their life, moving to Africa, you know, they, they took it seriously. And I was the same when I went to Santos, when um, it was about standing up, you know, doing the right thing, um, uh, and that was, you know, we laugh at the sort of chinless wonders in the UK, and, the, and it's true, a lot of them were not, uh, didn't look particularly soldierish, um, and they uh, they came from sort of very wealthy families, but they, they were under no uh, illusions that their job as an officer was if the shit ever hit the fan, or if someone needed to take the fall for something, if someone needed to stand up and say, that's not right, you know, my soldiers are getting die or that's not going to work you did it you know and um it was uh you know as i, as I say in the book or remember that three three cadets got chucked out of sanders um over some you know minuscule financial irregularity uh where they gathered money for a sort of photo and then and there was more money left over than the photo didn't cost it so much, and they pocketed the money. And they, when it was when that was found out, they got chucked out of Santos. So we, there were very high standards of ethics which were actually enforced. And um, uh, yeah, that was what I grew up on, and the idea that it may, it may be well, it wasn't even a question of being hard, but you just the one thing that was absolutely non-negotiable was your personal ethics and standing up for other people if it had to be done. And you, uh, you just did it in the same way that you ran towards the machine guns. You didn't, um, it wasn't in an option. There was no sort of wriggle room about, oh, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't, or maybe what's in it for me, or that was just, you know, it just wasn't there. You could still have fun. And there was a, you know, there was that sort of flip side of it. That didn't mean that you couldn't, have fun on your night out and generally get up to pranks and um uh do all that kind of stuff but 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 if 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 something really serious came along uh and you had to front up and someone had to do it it, it was you you couldn't push it onto someone else's shoulders if you someone had needed to stand up 
and say this is not right. Uh, it, it, it was you that, that did it. Oh, I just want to, um, we're going to go to a break. I just want to put this up on the screen again and uh, we might just roll uh, the picture a little bit clearer. But that's David's book, The Nature of Honour. You can pick it up at almost any bookshop these days. You can get it for as low as $24 uh, at, at a number of different bookshops, which is not a lot of money to spend on a man's life. And it is an incredible read. You're looking at uh, a 300-page story. We're going to get uh, to a break. When we come back, we're going to get into some of the detail, including, I think if we have time, we're going to talk about David's little uh, tryout for the SAS. And then we're going to talk about his um, uh, attempt uh, at politics and the exploration of uncovering how both sides of the political spectrum work and it's not that much different on either side and working out how David fitted into that process even if the system didn't quite work for the ability of David's um, to go out and be a doer in a system that more is concerned about itself instead of its purpose. Let's take that break now and we'll be back with more here on TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. You all know Dr. Jill Biden. Of course, she's the first lady. Here she is humiliating herself while talking to Hispanic Americans. As distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. <laughs> so say it with me. See, say quadre. The future is ours. A brain surgeon, apparently she's not. But she is a very selfish woman. She's the reason, I believe, that Joe Biden is being pressured to run for another term. Obviously, he can't handle it. I think she's selfish, and I'm not alone in thinking that. Kennedy of Fox News recently said the same thing. But Dr. Jill has gotten so addicted to the glitz mm -hmm. and the free dresses. And maybe they're not free. Yeah. They're very expensive dresses. Yeah. Uh, but the spotlights, the state dinners, mm -hmm. the private jet. I know it's Air Force One. Yeah. But, you know, the, the yeah, filthy, dirty people who fly southwest, they're not on Air Force One. <laughs> She's got a house full of servants. Uh -huh. They cater to her whims. It's called elderly abuse, and I find Dr. Jill Biden guilty. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. While serving in Afghanistan, I was hit by sniper fire. The fighting was so intense, the medevac chopper was barely able to land. In the hospital, I was given a 5% chance to live. It's a good thing math wasn't my best subject. Today, I visit classrooms and share my story. I talk to kids about dealing with life's struggles. I tell them, with a little help and a lot of work, that you can overcome any challenge. DAV helps veterans like Adam get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. I know that some struggles are big and some are small, but they're all struggles and you have to learn to get through them. With support from DAV, more veterans like me can live their best life. And as a new father, I have one more reason to keep on keeping on. My victory is being there for the next generation. Adam Alexander, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. When you need to know what's going on around the world, stay with Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT.
Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour is Major David McBride, who many, if not all of our viewers and listeners will be aware of, is facing a sentencing hearing in uh, the middle of March, where his fate is unknown at this stage. And all of us are hoping, praying and begging, if you will, that uh, David's work to expose uh, war crimes will be uh, appropriately dealt with. And at the, at the very least, uh, a suspended sentence and nothing more goes for that. David, th this is a, a very, very challenging time for you. And I do appreciate that uh, that, that we can talk to you about uh, your life, uh, particularly this this build up to this particular stage in relation, of course, to, uh, to your upbringing an incredible story that, uh, you, if anything, you, you're almost outdoing your father's work in many ways uh, in the way that you've been able to bring this to a head as we look over to the UK and watch uh, in earnest to see if Julian Assange will be granted leave, to be granted leave, to be able to appeal, to also avoid being uh, um, in this horrible predicament just for telling the truth. It's an unacceptable way of doing things. It's, uh, it's extraordinary and it's horrible at the same time. How are you holding up overall? I go up and down. Uh, I I feel great today. Speaking to you um, has absolutely lifted my spirits. In fact, it's quite good when I verbalise things. I often don't really know what's going on until I verbalise it. And uh, speaking to you today has really, it, it reminds me that I'm so grateful for TNT. TNT has been a big part of my um survival i guess because just the ability to be able to tell your story uh to hear other people's stories to empathize with them to swap this is what we're doing here today and and i have a tiny in, uh youtube channel as well where i i don't really interview people uh but i swap i swap stories in the fact that we talk and, and they tell me a little bit about their life and and where applicable i say yeah this is my experiences you know is similar whatever um, so yeah, that is good, and and our audience, the fact that there are people that listen to TNT, and um, the fact that TNT, without me um, saying anything, have gone out on their own and and supported Julian Assange, and gone to London, and um, and that is not necessarily uh, the popular thing to do. Um, I love that. Oh, that was my dog falling over. Um, <laughs> My staff, he's always here at my side and he wants to go for a walk and I was patting him and he fell over and rolled in the bed. <laughs> oh, you love it. But um, I, um, it's, uh, yeah, because being able to talk and, and being able, I've always said that, it was never about me avoiding jail. It, it has been about uh, people understanding that what you actually do stand for, that's what really matters. And so you talking about my book and, um, me having the ability to, to tell my story is like gold. I mean, I, I grew up uh, at boarding school. We grew up on the um, the Second World War literature about, uh, particularly the ones I like were prisoners and prisoners of war camp, cold hits and things like that. And so, being a prisoner of war is no disgrace, and being you know held um, within four walls is not necessarily um, something which should kill you. If you feel like you stand up for what you believe in, if you feel proud of what you've done, um, it's your own uh, and something I couldn't really go too much into your book, but it, I realised as my life went on, it's one's own conscience, which is the only thing that can really kill you. Um, 
and uh, or bullet scrambling, I guess. But but generally, it, it's your own uh, mind, uh, which is a powerful thing. And if you feel particularly bad about something uh, that you have done, th that can eat you up. Um, whereas if you don't, if you feel pretty good, uh, the fact that you're confined within four walls won't be the end of the world. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm grateful. Uh, the more I kind of say, yeah, well, I can do this, uh, I've got friends, I'm, I'm proud of what I've done, um, the better I feel. I don't always wake up feeling great. I feel tired. Um, I um, uh, I go up and down a bit. I try to stay fit. But as I said, the TNT and my friends like you do consider you a friend now. Uh, your, your family, as I say, once you once you become in a in a circle and, and and talk and you get you get my story um your family you know you're no longer yeah. a stranger and whether we only see each other down the uh the the, the, the internet mm. um it's it doesn't matter well you you know you may as well I may as well have known you for 50 years because um uh yeah we you know you 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 fought once you fight alongside somebody it's like the days of old braveheart or something mm. you forge a sort of bond which which is kind of unbreakable so um yeah the listeners the, the supporters um that's one of the things that I have got I'm growing up in a sort of privileged uh, family you don't we weren't um uh, I wouldn't say that, you know, we didn't have Australian flag uh, stickers on our cars or anything like that. And, uh, and but I have grown um, a deeper, a, a genuine deep love for this country now. There are a lot of really good people in this country and, and around the world, of course, um, who contact me and say, you know, you've done great things and I admire you and here's 10 bucks or whatever. Um, I you just love those people, retired you know, you get retired cops or teachers and they send you a cheque because they don't trust the electronic banking or something. And you just think you're you're fantastic, you know. Yeah. you are, I don't have time to reply to them all, but you do think you are good people and um, we have a lot of them in this country. And so that has made me, again, as I verbalise it, I can feel my stores of energy rising because I do think, yeah, I fight for you. Um, I will never give up for you because you're you're a you're a great person. If you go out of your way to help me, even though you could ignore it and go on your way and you're doing your uh, your grey nomad tour of Australia, but you still you still spend two hours in the in the post office in Borroloola sending me a, a check for ten bucks. Um, I love that. I just think that that is uh, fantastic, and that, and they're the sort of people that. that I'm great. I'm so grateful to have come across on this journey, and in some ways, you know, you know, even if I am in prison, um, and when you meet people like that, you just think, God, it's all worthwhile. It's all a fantastic thing when you when you meet those travellers on the way, who totally get you and basically fist pump you. Um, you think, yeah, I could do this, and I'm so proud of what I've done. Incredible, because this is the well. It seems to be the only way in 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 an upside down world to change the world. That it takes brave people to be able to do brave things, uh, and even suffer the consequences. And I'm always reminded of Nelson Mandela, uh, being locked up uh, on Robbins Island for 27 years and coming out and becoming 
president of South Africa and in many ways changing the world. And whilst no one wants that to happen to anyone else, it's a it's a very firm reminder of uh, of the great things that have to happen out of uh, unfortunately out of adversity. Now, David, you um you've served in the Australian and British armies. You went to Oxford and studied law, and you became the heavyweight boxing champion there. So clearly, you can take a hit. What was it like, and what got you into boxing? It's a funny story, and there's a famous name actually. Uh, I was playing rugby at Sydney University, and my captain was a guy. He was a he was a bit older than me, and uh, He'd just come back from Oxford and he's a guy, listeners will recognize, a guy called Tony Abbott, <laughs> who was a pretty hard man back in the day. And he said, uh, he, he, I don't think he quite recovered from going to Oxford. He, and that, uh, he just, lo- you know, he loves it. And he was like, you'll, you know, he couldn't quite explain it, but he said, you'll never, you know, he said, you'll, You'll make friends there that you'll you will never forget. And he said, if you can't get into the, he was a good rugby player, but he didn't make the Oxford rugby side either. And he said, if you can't make the Oxford rugby side, um, I'd suggest you box like I did. And I went along to the first training, and and um, I didn't get in the Oxford rugby side either. And I met this guy called Percy Lewis, who, who was a Trinidadian who'd come across after the Second World War um, with no money in his pocket, became a professional boxer um, and uh, and then became a bookmaker. But it, it, as I say in the book, he's one of those larger-than-life characters. The, the, the thing he will really be remembered for has been the Oxford boxing coach for about 30 years because so many people uh, were just inspired by him. He was this quietly spoken Trinidadian who um, – who never shouted, but no one wanted to let him down, you know. And uh, uh, and the reunions were always um, uh, raucous affairs and funny because people had funny stories. He used to have this old tape player where he'd play these tapes, and one of the tapes, as as we did in those days, they had a break, <laughs> and he just he just sticky taped the break so the music would go soft, <laughs> and then start again. It was the days before compact discs, well, they compact discs were, were a new thing. And um, we'd listen to this uh, reggae music or uh, Trinidadian music and we'd, we'd do our skipping and uh, um, we trained every night in the dark and the rain in in, uh, in Oxford, but it, it was inspiring. And um, I loved it, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't particularly natural at it, but um, what he, he liked about me um, was I turned up. Um, I was determined not to go... Um, away from Oxford without something to show for it. And uh, and uh, like Abbott, Abbott had been the champion boxer. And um, uh, so I just worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. And, uh, yeah, it, it was quite interesting getting hit in there because I was the heaviest. And so there was no one um, at the university to sort of put me uh, under pressure. So the coach used to take me out to fight um, or practice against sort of professionals um, and they hit hard. Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember once I'm standing <laughs> in the ring, and then it was like I'd never experienced before. It was like the the light switch in your head got turned out, and you were I didn't actually fall over, but I was standing in the middle of the ring, and uh, everything was black. And um, and it, it, for a few seconds, it was like reboot rebooting a computer, and uh, and and then it started to the, my eyes started to open again and um like a cartoon with the <laughs> yes, with yes, the stars yes. going around going around your head um 
but it was it was exhilarating to do something which was genuinely hard. Um, you would no one could really help you. The thing about boxing is when you're in the ring, uh, it's the loneliest sport, and even your captain, your coach, even nobody, your mother, your yeah. best friend, nobody can. Once that bell goes, there isn't anybody that can help you but yourself. And, a, and a, at least half the audience want to see you fall on the face or mm. <laughs> so uh, yeah it's pretty confronting and um but that was great I think the harder the harder the challenges are uh the, the more you get out of them and um so I I, I really liked that and I uh, uh I always remember that and, and and even now facing my trials the, the one people the people I have a fair bit of good-natured uh, contact with is my old boxing buddies from from over thirty years ago, um, but they still um, they still stay in contact, and uh, some of them are even in you know in America and far-flung places of the world, but they still send me emails and and we have a bit of a chuckle. Uh, that shows you the sort of camaraderie that you that you build up. Now we're, we're almost at the end of the hour. Unbelievably, how fast time flies. I, I want to spend. Uh, to probably I'm going to soak up most of the time just paying tribute to to you and your book, and I'm going to read from it. Uh, this is a reference to the uh, time that you spent in politics. You went to the Labor Party, you switched parties, and you're starting to work as a staffer, and you wrote this in your book, and it says, this was the reality of local politics. There weren't enough staff to do much except answer letters with vanilla responses such as, thank you for your letter. That was the response, not solving the issue to my frustration. This didn't seem to be a job for anyone who actually wanted to change things. Orders came from the central office of the party, and the three years between elections would be spent gathering mailing lists, attending dog shows, and preparing for the next campaign in which we'd promise whatever the polling people told us, those who were thinking of us to change their vote to the other guys want us, wanted us to hear us say. It's just a tragic indictment of politics. But regardless, you become the um, uh, the pre-selected nominee for the seat of Coogee in the state election, and there's this beautiful little story here where you're going campaigning and your own dad decides to come out door-knocking with that. would have been a beautiful moment, something to treasure. And you're right, one memory in particular stands out. We knocked on a door and an older woman answered. We introduced ourselves and she said, I know exactly who you are, doctor. I used to be dispensary nurse in Crown Street Hospital. I remember when you came in and asked me to take the thalidomide off the shelves. I think you've been very badly treated by this country. Dad's eyes had filled with tears and he was quietly sobbing while he put on a brave face during all these years that had taken a toll on him. It must have been so gratifying for him to be reminded that he had, in fact, given the order for thalidomide not to be used by the hospital. David, we've only got a minute left. I just want to say that um, we are all grateful for the work that you have done in exposing unthought of, untold crimes that at the very least can only raise the standards of the army that you served. We are incredibly proud of you. We love you and we wish you the best. And we are here, whatever we can do in the lead up, that uh, we all hope that this is something that we can contribute to make your time uh, as painless as possible. And please God, uh, that the judge sees right and do, does the right thing. And I, I just, I, I, I feel for you, I'm proud of you. And I just can't believe that we're in a situation in this world today that must be changed. And thank you for the leadership that you have given this country and the world and the way that you stole, put principles before anything else, because first do no harm. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a great little speech. I'll have to get this and send it out. And uh, yeah, well, you have helped me today, Jason. I cannot, uh, I can't really quite express it in words, but you've helped me enormously. Filled up my cup of courage 
and oh yeah, I'm ready to run through a brick wall now. Well, there you go. Look, I, I, we have to go to the break. I'm just going to say the book is here. I'll mention it again later in the show. The Nature of Honour. Pick it up. There you go. We're going to take news headlines and be back.